they just saw Fashion Valley close down, so that's it. VVU soap is cancelled. You know, how can people mm. celebrate her? She's clearly not a good entrepreneur. Oh, I had to read articles about my failures from people who didn't even interview me. You know, so yeah. where are you getting all these assumptions? Social media platforms and creative-focused startups haven't looked too hot coming into 2023, with companies like Meta and Snapchat waging off layoffs along with the rest of the tech industry. But the creator and influencer economy are more than just buzzwords losing interest among VCs. Despite challenges on a platform level, blogger to entrepreneur Vivi Yusof is a case study of just how retained attention is a currency that will continue to be important in 2023 and beyond. But of course, the journey is never easy. While Vivi today boasts 1.8 million followers, which she attributes to her success in many of her chapters, Vivi in the recent years has had to swallow the bitter pill of a failing business in the public light, resulting in a massive pivot. FashionValley.com, an online marketplace that once stocked over 400 brands across Southeast Asia, became a major regional player in the fashion industry. But by 2022, she had won the venture down, shifting her focus to her own in-house modest fashion brands, Duck and Lilith. The silver lining? By 2022, Yusuf had built a network of 14 physical stores across Malaysia and Singapore and sold more than 3 million scars from just one of her brands. Today, we unpack Vivi's journey, the cost of building a brand around herself, her regret on not acting on her gut sooner, and her billion-dollar ambitions for next decade in the modest fashion industry. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. Smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture ecosystem, and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. Vivi Yusof. Vivi Yusof is a name that we've heard over and over again, loved by millions of women. Vivi, how are you? I'm good. I'm so happy to be. This is my first podcast, Sarah, with you. Oh, I am so honored. I am so honored. So we will live live up to expectations. I always say, you know, we rise to the occasion and what what better way, you know, because we both got the memo. I was uh, vibing with you even before we got started. <laughs> well, Vivi, um, we are heading towards the end of the year. You've yeah. just released your book, which has taken you about two years, as you as you've told me previously. How does it feel? Oh my god, I have it here. I go to sleep with it. Yes. <laughs> but I, I I mean I started my journey as a blogger. Um, as mm. you know, I started very early on in university. I love writing, even though I went through the entrepreneur journey and still going through it, writing has always been like my my passion, my form of therapy, you know. So to come full circle and actually write a book about the journey for the 10 years you know, is surreal. And I'm the most impatient person and and so not disciplined. So writing a book really forces you to to do that. You know, you have to relive each memory, the good and the bad. Um, You have to uncover again all the mistakes you've done, which is really hard Mm. um, to go through that again and write about it, you know. So uh, I think, you know, I... I like to do things fast. So I was pretty surprised that this book took me almost two years. I thought it would be a three-month thing. Um, very naive of me. Um, still, you know, having my job and having four children. It's um, it's it's a miracle that this has launched and I'm really happy. I, I published it with Penguin. So now it's going to yeah. be... Uh, global distribution hopefully so hopefully it'll be in the u.s um and in the europe and and all of that um soon yes i already got my uh, kindle copy so i have been digging in and uh, i'm so excited yeah i've been digging in you know the the k-drama of you and fadza and and the hair blowing and all that i i love it i love it all but let's let's get started i mean in in true billion dollar moves fashion uh vivi you know we we go deep uh, as raw and, and as unfiltered as can be on billion dollar moves. And I want to really understand, you know, 
some context, right? Give our audience a little bit of context of how Vivi Yusuf came to be. I know you you, you talked about uh, a little bit about the, the joy of writing uh, from day one, but go even further back than that. You know, as a child, were you always uh, set up to be this Vivi Yusuf you imagined? Ooh, okay, so um, I was born and raised in Kuala Lumpur. It's the capital of Malaysia. Um, and I am the youngest out of two siblings. So my sister... My elder sister is seven years older than me, so she was off to boarding school. So basically, I was alone, you know. And and when you're alone, I guess there's all this like creativity coming in your mind. And I loved like role playing by myself, you know. I was like putting on my teddy bears aligned, and I've always been a little bit bossy. So my my mom has told me that there's always been that leadership in me since young. You know, I've always been the bossy one telling the whole family where to eat, what to do, what time to sleep, you know, like, um, so she saw that in me and um, writing was very much influenced by Sweet Valley Kids. Do you, do you know that series? Yes, I love Sweet Valley. My goodness. <laughs> So I, I used to collect it. That would be like the highlight, you know, of my day, uh, going to the bookstore and getting like the new, the new, uh, the new edition. Um, and so I've always loved um, writing and imagining and storytelling and creating. Um, so it, I think it's it makes sense that now I am an entrepreneur. I am still the bossy me. I still love creating something out of nothing. You know, I love creating products. Um, I love fashion. I created this blog. I did not know where it would take me. Um, and it's pretty crazy how everything falls into place. Because when you start a blog, it's literally just, hey, you know, just writing. Um, hmm. But I never would have foreseen getting millions of people Tuning in, um, yeah. I think even until today, that feels really surreal. Yeah. Hold that thought. Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Okay, so I don't actually know, but I do know that 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot. And for good reason. HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startup scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit hubspot.com slash startups. Yeah, so tell us, I mean, this this blogging uh, activity, right? I, I mean, it, it it feels so recent, but it's also a, a while ago. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine that your career really started with a blog. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the birth of your blog, you know, what, what were you writing about and, you know, how you actually, you know, how, what actually made, made you grow following in some way? Yeah, I, I, gosh, I mean, I started it uh, when I was in university. My friend set it up for me because she's like, you know what, like you, you like to write, like blogging is a new thing. You got to be on it. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I guess what do I write about, you know? So um, I, I actually graduated in law. Um, in LSE, London School of Economics. So completely different. And while I should have been in law school <laughs> reading, <laughs> I found more pleasure in um, writing and it's just daily things. And the interesting thing that my husband, when he, he was my boyfriend then, you know, so he saw me through it. He was like, blogging comes so naturally for you. You would write something that's like, you know, a whole page long, but it only took you 10 minutes. So I, it, it wasn't a chore. It didn't take up much time, but I was consistent and not for fame, not for more viewership, not to get viral. It's literally just writing from the heart to myself. You know, for the longest time, I never knew how to read the statistics or whatever on, on the WordPress or the Blogspot, right? So yeah. I had no idea who I was talking to. And I was terrified when I found out that I was talking to my dad. <laughs> Here I am writing about the parties, you know, my dad on the other side in Malaysia, the blog was how he kept um, kept in touch with me, like knowing my, <laughs> my whatabouts, you know. So, um, yeah, so I, 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 I went anonymous uh, for a while. My, my faces mm. were isolated because I was, you know, terrified of him finding out. Um, and then on my graduation day, he came and he, he told me like, um, okay, so, you know, you've done all this. Now you got to think about your career. Where do you want to work? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, by the way, you should continue blogging. And I'm like, 
what? You know, you knew? And he was like, of course, I'm your dad. I know everything. I was like, oh, no. But him giving me that blessing, I wrote about this in the book, is mm. what kind of catalyzed everything. The growth after that was just exponential because I started revealing my name, myself, my my OTDs at that time, you know. So um, his blessing really opened doors for me. And that's how I think it just grew. And then Instagram, Facebook, Instagram, you know, it's 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 been great. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think this happens a lot in in Asia in that I think the celebrity factor um, happens uh, sudden, it, what feels like suddenly and quickly, right? With certain people. And I, I wonder, you know, I've always wanted to ask you this question. When you think about what you were writing about, you know, who you were putting forward into the interwebs, right? Uh, what do you think resonated with people? And, and why do you think you really hit it off as a celebrity in some way? So I really don't like the celebrity word for me. Because <laughs> to me, like celebrity, okay, actress, singer, you know. Mm. So I think was really tough for people to put me in any bucket you know um i'm first and foremost a blogger at the time and then became an entrepreneur right and because i had the following already when i was an entrepreneur they immediately called me celebrity entrepreneur what does that mean (laughs) so um i think i i i still feel a little uncomfortable when people call me celebrity because i don't think of myself as that at all if anything i'm just an entrepreneur that has a little bit of influence um and a bit of following online that's it you know um and i i ironically i think people follow me because i'm not a celebrity you know they Mm. just want someone relatable someone maybe even just like them um, and because they they read, I think the power of words and writing and storytelling is so powerful because people feel like they know you, you know, um, and they've seen you because I've been doing it consistently since uni days. They feel like they've been a part of my life, part of my growth, my my getting married, my starting a business, my having my first, second, third, fourth child, you know, like they were there. And this is the feedback that I get every time I meet them. Um, and they're like, I feel like I know you, you know, like I know your kids. And it gets a bit weird sometimes because um, we even had a reality show to promote the business. And um, it got to a point where my kids got so famous that we would go to uh, weddings. People will come and kiss them on the cheek, you know strangers and we were eating at a restaurant um one day and someone just sat down and sat with us while we were eating and and had a conversation so it it got a little bit okay uh is this is this normal so that 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 gets a little bit um Hmm. weird but i'm still really grateful that this is the community that really basically raised me yeah yeah, and and we want to jump a little bit to the business, but you you know you brought up a very interesting uh, topic that I I did want to dig in a little bit deeper, you know, with regard to what you said, right? The fact that you've had some influence, uh, you continue to have that influence, but importantly, you're putting every single element of your life, including your kids, your family, everything else. Uh, you know, everybody knows or thinks they know you, right? The version of you that's out there. What have been some of the challenges in that for you? Um, well, you know, I think it's a choice that you make. This was my path. You know, everybody's path is different. Some people are extremely private. Some people are extremely public. You know, whatever works for them at that time. For me, I started as a blogger and I started to share lots of things even from then, even before the business, even before the kids. So it's kind of like just, going along with it, you know, Um, and I've had many episodes where I stop and think like, am I sharing too much? And that's just honest, right? I don't think any influencer who had sudden fame and then had a business and the business kicked off um, would not think about this. They definitely would think about this. When you get to your 30s, do you still want to do, you know, like, sharing everything. When you get to your 40s, do you still want to do makeup tutorials? You know, like you think about that. And right now I'm at a very, I guess, a transition phase where I do think about this and I'm thinking I already have investors. The business is not cute anymore. You know, it's a proper organization now with, 
you know, institutional investors. And here I am like, hey guys, welcome to my house. You know, like, do I still want to be that persona for the brand? Um, and mm. I, I loved your your last episode with, with Rana where you talked about decoupling your identity from the business, right? Because the entire business had me, like, my face there, right? So it's very hard. I'm at that stage where I'm thinking, okay, I got four kids now. Um, you know, do I want to share less? Um, do I, but what does that mean for the people who have followed me all this while, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm still going along, but I'm following my gut. Mm. And then there are the security things like your kid's school, your cars, your num- your plate numbers, you know, your address. You just don't give that away, you know, because you don't know who's watching. As much as I, I love that there are so many women supporting me, I'm sure there are some, you know, I don't know who's out there, right, um, watching. So I, I tend to be a bit more cautious now, especially after becoming a mother. Um, but, you know, the tough parts about building a business so publicly is that your mistakes really get aired, you know, aired and amplified, you know, 10 times. For many businesses, if there's a customer complaint, you know, they solve it. They, you know, replace the product or, you know, say sorry and all that. But for me, it becomes viral. It becomes news in the media. It becomes like, oh my God, Vivi sent the wrong order to this person. You know, um, it, 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 it's very, it's the, the pros are good, but the cons are also there, you know, um, and everything we do, there's pros and cons. So I've learned to, um, be thick faced about it. And there are some things in the media I cannot control. And it's just so much misinformation that I just get so upset sometimes. But mm-hmm. I've learned to pick my battles, you know, because I cannot refute every single news about me or about the, the brand um, in the news, especially on Twitter. Yeah, you, you don't want to go down that rabbit hole. And I, and I know you have. And I know you have as well and then suffered from that. But okay, yeah. so, so, you know, this is a an important topic that uh, we'll come back to. But let's go back to, you know, you and Fadza uh, building this partnership, both personally and professionally, uh, resulting in, you know, the birth of a brand, uh, Fashion Valley. How did that all come to be? I mean, both of you were just, what, in your 20s? Uh, this was uh, long before the e-commerce boom in Southeast Asia in, in a big way. Tell us a little bit about that chapter. I think we were so blessed because we did it at the right time. Um, we had just graduated from the UK. I was from LSE. Fadza did um, aeronautical engineering in Imperial. So completely nothing to do. And then you come back, you sell women's clothes. You know, his his dad still makes jokes about that. Um, send you so far away, studying about aeroplanes, and you come back and do something completely different, you know. Um, but that's our path. Uh, we came back after being very accustomed to shopping online in the UK. You know, there's ASOS at that time. There's, you know, Sainsbury, Tesco, you know, all this like very, very in tune with shopping online. When we came back, we realized in our own country, in Malaysia, there was nothing like it. You know, it was very infant stage. There wasn't any big players coming in yet. You know, so we thought, and and I saw that, you know, I have a following online. So this is an opportunity that we should grab right um and the idea came when he was driving me from store to store and he was like can't all of these stores just be in one place you know and online so we don't have to leave our house and i'm like oh and then he also went oh should we do that you know Mm. and um and it just went like from that idea to the website launch fashionvalet.com.net at that time it was one month sarah like we did wow. everything, set up the company, come up with the idea, talking to the web builders, talking to the designers that we wanted to consign, um, getting their stock, photo shooting, uploading, editing, and pressing live. All that was one month. So we went full throttle. Like It was just obsession. And I wrote about this in my book. Obsession is really needed to make something successful. You know, um, That was all we could think about. I slept thinking about Fashion Valley. I woke up thinking about Fashion Valley. You know, it was so exciting. And I think every entrepreneur, every founder can relate to this when the beginnings, right? The, the early days, it's just so, um, so nice and so fulfilling. 
And, you know, at the same time, you're hopeful. You're like, hopefully people will like it. You know, I'm working so hard. I don't know where this is going, but hey, like, let's just do this. We're young, you know, and thankfully um, we had a bit of cushion for us because I have a following. So at least I had a platform to kind of tell people like, hey, come to this website. Like I just launched, your girl just launched something, you know, um, and people were so happy. Um, and the website was horrible. <laughs> the photos yeah. when we launched were yellow, you know, because we did not know anything about photography. And who was the one that shaped us and helped us navigate through this was literally our customers. So it was literally my blog readers and my supporters, my followers that helped me maneuver. You know, they're like, hey, how come you don't have filters? Like, how come there's no, you know, tops and then long sleeves and short sleeves? And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, got to do that. And and so Fashion Valley, when you started, I mean, fashionvalley.net, when you were, I guess this was uh, at, the, at the, towards the end of your university, what, what was your following like at that point in time? My following. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. But at that time, there was no Instagram yet. So yeah. I did not have, say, you know, 1.8 million followers, but I did have like maybe a few thousand readers on, on mm. my yeah, so so they were the ones who who you know helped me grow really. So you had your one thousand true fans. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, at know, least right. Being the pioneer, doing it in your country, um, really helps you gain um, media love. You know, because you're the first, you're the pioneer. So we also were so indebted to the media because they were like writing about this website that carried local designers and it was such a nice cause right like um of course I've I've pivoted since then you know it's been 12 years but um at that time when we launched it everybody was rooting for it because how can you not like a a platform of building many local entrepreneurs that that's beautiful you know so even for us like in the early days we weren't you know that fueled us, you know, knowing that mm. if we make it, all these hundred designers make it too, you know. So that was the camaraderie spirit that we had, you know, among all of us. And because we were the only one at that time. So all the attention was on us. Everybody wants to support this cause of building your own local talents and giving them the platform. Um, and, you know, I miss I miss it, you know, even though, you know, I, that's no longer um, in our path. Uh, and we've said goodbye to that business because it, it commercially it didn't it didn't make business sense, you know, because mm. um, the supply was not consistent, and we were dealing with, you know, very very small um, uh, enterprises. So it was hard to scale, and you know, but I miss doing it because it was such a nice cause, you know. Fadza at that point in time, he was with uh, well, well when you guys were just getting started, he was with Deloitte, wasn't he? Yeah. So he was probably the worst employee there. (laughs) 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 He would would be like 7am at our office with our friend, you know, doing orders and stuff. And he's like, oh man, I got to go to work. So then he's like, okay, Mm -hmm. then he'll go, you know, at nine or whatever. And then he'll come back right on the dot at 6pm, you know, leave the office like goodbye. Um, But I think his boss knew, his boss knew that this was something else. And even his boss encouraged him, like, I think you should do this, you know, full time. Um, This has potential. E-commerce is booming, you know, um, and I really want to see you succeed here. So it was really, you know, it was obvious that his heart wasn't there. And um, it was nice that his his peers encouraged him, like, go do this, you know, go go make us proud, you know. Um, and he, he left after, I don't know, like almost a year. Um, he also got really left out. I think when you see, like, if it's three people, right, and then two people are so close doing all these things and making things happen, you're in another place. You get a bit like, oh, I want to be a part of that. Like, that's mine too, you know. Um so, so he he quickly left and joined when he's when we saw traction already in revenue. Mm. And and what was I mean? You know, one of the key issues that we see with a lot of uh, startups is actually you know finding the right co-founder, right? And you found that in your husband. How did Mary. that all? <laughs> Mario co-founder. Well, we, we, we don't all have that, that option. Um, but, you know, h- how did you both decide? I mean, this is strategic as well, right? In in which it's almost like you're both all in. 
in some mm-hmm. way in one endeavor, this is going to work or this is not. How did both of you arrive at this decision that both of you were going to work at it? And what were your roles respectively? Yeah, I think it's um, it's uh, com- logic mixed with a little bit of naivety. You know, when you're young and in love, you're like, yeah, let's do this together, you and me, you know, like, yeah, things are going to go so well. Let's get married, you know. Um, so it's a little bit of that, but it's also how we're, I looked at, I analyzed our personalities. We complement each other so well. So this is the advice I give young entrepreneurs as well. When you find a co-founder, try to find someone who's the opposite of you, you know, in skill sets, right? So for me, I'm a people person. I like going out. I like marketing. I like product. He loves finance, strategy, operations, things that I don't necessarily enjoy. So us put together, it was like a dream team. And on top of that, we also are so aligned in personal lives as well, you know. So actually, in a way, it made it easier because after we got married, like we were even more aligned because all our eggs are in this basket. Like it's all or nothing, like you said, right? So we got to make it work, you know. So when your interests are aligned and the stakes are that high, you get even closer. And, you know, um, it, it it's it's such a good partnership I can't imagine doing this without him um and it's so funny like when we when we talk to our other married friends our married couples and we're like what do you guys talk about at home like because you guys lead different lives at work so when you come home it's like if you talk about work you don't know who I'm talking about you know and I don't know who you're talking about so I'm like huh like what do they talk about well this is this is it our lives are just one a lot of uh, there are, you know, couples in, in running businesses and all that, but it there's often a lot of tension. There's this, how, how do you manage uh, times when it gets really difficult? Yeah, so we made a pact where we have to talk about the big strategic things, just the two of us first. We need to be aligned before we go into a meeting. So before any meeting, we know what the objective is, what we want from this, you know, and we align first so that we don't look like, you know, haphazard in front of everyone, like, huh? Like, you know, um, so we are very respectful of each other in that way. We also made another rule that we have to solve arguments immediately. So there's no dragging on, Mm. I don't talk to you for two days, I give you silent treatment for a week. That never happens with us because it really affects work. So there's no, you can't drag it on. Like it's not a, you know, um, even an option because we have to, look, I was upset that you did this. Um, I didn't like that, you know, you said this, you know, can we talk about this? And, and you know, one of us will, okay, sorry about that. You know, uh, that won't happen again. Nothing gets um, um, held in. Like it's all out yeah. and it's solved. Next, next, you know. So um, that is very important, I think, especially when you're, you're, you know, you're leading an organization of like 300 people. It cannot be, you know, whether these founders have an argument or not, that things, you know, um, progress. If you were to think about the times when you both argued about something, was there, I guess, a pattern of, you know, what these disagreements would be? I mean, was because you're both very different, right? I mean, you know, for me, uh, we talk a lot about diversity being very healthy and diversity of thought is healthy, but it's also very difficult to actually manage. When you think about that between both of you, is there anything, I mean, that you picked up from reflecting on your time working together? I think, uh, yes, there is a pattern. And the pattern is always, I think it's not fast enough. Because mm. I'm the impatient one. I'm the one that's like, you know, let's go. Let's do this now. Let's take this project and that project. Oh, another project. Oh, opportunity. You know, so I'm more of like the let's jump in and do everything. Let's just jump in to the point where, it, it may de- be detrimental, you know, to our focus and um, shifting our focus a little bit. Because um, I guess that's the entrepreneur in me that, you know, I just want to, every, every opportunity is, is, is a potential for, for something, right? So um, we argue a lot about that, about, you know, mm. I say, I need to say no more and he needs to be faster, you know? So um, we have a lot of arguments about speed and, um, whether we grab opportunities that come our way or not. Um, and those are big decisions and big discussions because they're all strategic, right? And um, yeah. if you take this, this, say, if you want to start another brand, then, you know, everything in the group 
will be affected you know so it's it's really big discussions and i think the longer we the bigger the business is now the more difficult these conversations get to be honest mm. like the stakes are higher you know um and right. and now we have uh, investors to to answer to so everything must be calculated so our personalities mixed together hopefully will help us find this balance especially moving forward now to the second decade Absolutely. And, you know, talking about being opportunistic and, and riding the right wave when it hits you, uh, you started Fashion Valley at an interesting time. It, it grew traction uh, very quickly. And as you said, you got support from the locals. But then uh, Rocket Internet came in and that actually put fire, uh, you know, beneath your feet. In yeah. some way, how how did that shape, I guess, the trajectory of your business with competition coming in? Mm. Rocket Internet coming in was super scary for us because, you know, two young founders, suddenly there's a big conglomerate, you know, billion dollar valuations coming in. We're like, okay, goodbye. You know, this is it. This was fun. <laughs> so we got really scared. But I think uh, the fire in me lit up. I was like, no, I'm, I'm not going to back down. And um, that's where we started talking about fundraising. So if anything, you know, Rocket Internet actually helped us grow. Our competitor mm. helped us grow tremendously because we started gearing up. You know, um, we knew that we couldn't grow exponentially if we didn't have funds, if we didn't have capital. And so fundraising became an option, which, you know, is pretty scary for two young f- founders like you, you people talk about investment like you know um and vcs like you know people in suits you know with jargons evaluations la 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 but for us it's like learning about this it's intimidating you know it's scary so we had to learn um and of course in true vv fashion it had to be in front of the nation because we joined a reality show about getting funding and if you win you get funding at the end um and we did all the way, you know, so that was in front of the nation and it was on TV. So if we failed, we royally failed like in front of everyone, you know. So um, to me, it's like go big or go home, you know, right. if, even if we lose, if, even if we lose and didn't get this investment, at least we got marketing traction on TV, which we can't afford, sure. you know. So, so to me, it was a win-win either way. Um, but we did get the investment and I think, oh, I don't know. I don't know if you can relate to this or any founder here, but once you get the first investment, you kind of get addicted and you want to raise again and again. And, you know, yeah. like it becomes, it becomes like a, a drug that you need to like, you know, raise your valuation. You need to like prove to people, you need to get more funds because it's like, you know, glamorous or sexy or you've made it, you know, when actually no, because that's the beginning of like, your you know your a new stress level is 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 it's gone up right the pressures have gone up um now you got to hit your targets hold that thought my first million hosted by sam Parr and shan puri is brought to you by the hubspot podcast network the audio destination for business professionals my first million features amazing guests like alex homozi sofia omoroso hassan minaj sharing their secrets for how they made their first million and how to apply their learnings to capitalize on today's business trends and opportunities. An episode I really liked, a recent one on how Sam's mother-in-law built a million-dollar Etsy business out of nothing. And I believe it involves pillows. So listen to My First Million wherever you get your podcasts. So at that time, I mean, this was, what year was this? Remind us again. Uh, 2012. So we started in 2010. 2012 Mm -hmm. was when... And that came in and we also um, got funding. Um, and then there were subsequent rounds of funding after that. Right. So in 2012, that was when uh, Rocket Internet came in for the North American uh, audience. It's, you know, the equivalent of uh, what would you call it? Um, Amazon, right? In, in a big way, because they have all sorts, including fashion as well. And they were bringing in all sorts of brands and your strategy at that point in time was still uh, local designers, right? Was it still that at that point in time? Yep. We went all the way with that. So local designers was our niche. And Mm -hmm. when Zalora came in, we were were like, okay, so do we 
scroll now? Do we go head to head with them? And I think we tried that a bit and we realized that it wasn't going to work um, because we didn't have the funds that they had. So it was much mm. better to niche. And even our customers were like, what are you guys doing carrying brands like, you know, Maybelline or like, you know, it just didn't make sense. Like you guys are all about locals. So what are you trying to be? So we were like, okay, okay, you know, can't, we can't follow our competitors. So I think that was my lesson where I'm like, never try to be like your competitor, you know, find mm. your itch and just go all the way with that and don't try to be someone else. You know, so I think that's a huge lesson that I learned um, that carried me on until now. Like even with Duck and Lilith, I'm always aware of what competitors are doing, but I always stop myself, like never try to be tempted to be like them because you have your own niche, you have your own specialty, you know. And what was your, I mean, niche at that point in time? Uh, was it just any local designer or how were you thinking about the business at that time? What did Fashion Valley seek to represent? Yeah, it was literally that, um, local designers, um, because at that time, the local designer scene was quite small here. So it was the intent of wanting to grow it, you know, and with Fashion Valley having more funding, we actually could fund the designers to make their mm. collections because a lot of the designers, they're smaller, right? So it's not like they're Nike or Zara, you know, that has, you know, uh, you know, capital to keep running and running. Some of them, run from collection to collection. So if they didn't make money from this collection, there would be no second collection, right? So I think Fashion yeah. Valley in a big way helped a lot of designers because we funded each collection. Um, and we helped even with marketing. We helped with the platform. We even co-designed some things with them in collaboration. So um, we kind of spurred a lot of activity in the local fashion industry, which before this was very small, you know. So it was... Um, we were really known for that. We were really known to support local. The problem with that, with that is that when we try to scale to other countries, mm. which of course is something we want. Like as, as an entrepreneur, I want to be a global brand. Whatever it is that I make or sell, I want to be global. I don't want to just be a Malaysian brand. I want to be a global brand, right? So then we start realizing that, uh-oh, like we've gone too nationalistic with this Malaysian local designers. You know, like how how do we sell this to Middle East? How do we sell this to the US? How do we sell this to even our neighbors like Indonesia? You know, like um, it got, it, it, I think that was um, something that hit, hit us. But mm. us, me especially being a very stubborn entrepreneur, I'm like, no, we can make it work. People will love it. You know, don't worry. Uh, we'll try anyway. So we did that. And I should have followed my gut because I think I knew I knew that this wasn't a relevant product for that market. You know, it was difficult to scale this. And yet I still wanted to try and prove that it could work, you know. So we pivoted. But mm. I think if I followed my gut, we would have pivoted a lot sooner and um, stopped ourselves from burning. Yeah, and, and this uh, notion of having to pivot right and and holding out giving it a try and things like that i i think that every entrepreneur goes through that journey right because as you said you know we're obsessed to the point that sometimes reality is warped um yes. and in in some way you know you were trying your best here but what was it that really told you i i guess what was the inflection point that this is really not going to work what was the wake-up call that said okay we need to do something else here yeah um, okay, so it, it wasn't one moment, you know, I think we were introduced to the numbers that was already telling that, okay, we're not really getting much from here. We suddenly have a lot of dead inventory of mm. various local designers and um, worse was that these local designers were also working with our competitors, with Zalora, because they were also um, um, offering, you know, lucrative deals. Um, so it, it got like, why are we doing this? You know, like, what what for? Like, it, it's just the numbers don't look good. Um, designers are, aren't, 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 are going, working with our competitors. It, it's like, what, what for, you know, like th this is not going well. And when we started failing internationally, like one by one, we're like, okay, our, we don't have product market fit, you know, and mm. culturally fashion is so different also, you know, so it got very difficult to scale. The numbers don't look good. And I think, we knew 
But putting the hammer on it, I don't know, like maybe other founders can relate. Like it's so hard, it's your baby, you know, to say like, bye, like no more is very difficult. But a blessing was that we started Duck and other house brands. Um, So Duck is eight years old now. So in our Fashion Valley journey, thank God we built in-house brands because that really Mm -hmm. um, um, helped us. It subsidized Fashion Valley heavily um, to a point where I wrote this in the book as well, that at one point, um, our house brands were contributing 90% of revenue of the entire group. Wow. So like, what else? What else? What other signs do we need? So Fashion Valley was like in the loss. But here's our other mm. house brands that were very profitable. So, you know, your minus is out. That's what we were like trying to save this Fashion Valley platform. But when the pandemic hit, suddenly the local brands, there were just no more supply. You know, and Fashion Valley became just our brands um, in new arrivals, right? So we were like, okay, I think it's not fair for the brands because they have so much potential to grow on their own in separate ways, right? But we're lumping them together in one marketplace forever. It wasn't going to be good for the long growth of these brands. And so when you, when you think about sort of the, I, and I've heard you say this, you know, your margins were something like from 30% with Duck and Lilith, your own brand that was 50% and beyond. So clearly uh, the business was telling you that this was going to work out. Uh, how, how was the unraveling of, um, you know, the previous version of Fashion Valley? Um, how did that all happen? Yeah, I thought, you know, pivoting would be so simple. Okay, you know, this won't work now, just move on, you know. But actually, hey, wait a minute, we have so many stakeholders. We have our investors that we have to explain this to and sell and convince this new direction. Um, We also have our team um, who's so invested in, you know, wanting to build up the local fashion industry that, okay, so that means their purpose has changed here. Like, you know, I worried about that as well, like the morale, you know, of our Mm. team. Then I had to tell the designers, like, hey, I'm not going to sell you anymore. So um, nice knowing you, you know, like it was like, what do I say? Right. And then the fourth one was our customers and the public at, at large. And I know that, you know, being in the spotlight, being in um, very public in, in my country, um, our mistakes get celebrated by the haters too you know like they are waiting you know for for this to happen and i just we you know we had many discussions about preparing ourselves for each of the stakeholders you know for the investors we're going to do this they are the ones we have to explain this first okay once they're in all good like then it's all operations execution after that right so we had like i think daily stand-ups we called this the project sunset and um, that project had a committee and we went through every single thing. Like we had to build website and apps for the brands and then c- transition the customers to that website and app and leave Fashion Valley. So we had to do a lot of like exclusive deals. Ooh, it wasn't like a one month thing. It was a two year um, plan. You know, it was a two year progression from telling the designers like, okay, um, we are going to, um, you know, close down Fashion Valley, the marketplace. Um, we need to return your stock, all these things. Um, and that process went first. So by the time we actually closed down the website, everyone already, everyone internally already knew because they've, we've, they've been, we've been talking about it for a year. It's been in the process for that long. Um, so they weren't surprised. Uh, designers didn't say anything because they knew it wasn't news, but it was news to the public. And I think, oh, it was, um, it was bittersweet. I think then the haters started coming out and like, told you, told you that, you know, this girl's a scam, blah, blah, blah. Like I had to go through so much public humiliation um, because people didn't know the extent of the whole story. You know, they didn't know that actually we were were profitable um, as Mm. a group and it's, we are closing down the unprofitable unit. So it's a good thing for the business, but they didn't know that they just saw Fashion Valley close down. So that's it. Vivi Yusuf is canceled. You know, how can people Mm. celebrate her? She's clearly not a good entrepreneur. Oh, I had to read articles about my failures from people who didn't even interview me. You know, so yeah. where are you getting all these assumptions? If I may, one of the criticisms was also that uh, you were basically copying, right? Some of the 
designs that you claim to be supporting. And that was one of the big ones that really hit you hard, I think. Uh, you know, how how did you resolve that? And and did you feel you made mistakes in, in handling that? Well, I think I feel sad because um, these claims were just claims on social media that had no proof or even had any legality around it. A scarf is a scarf, you know, like a floral print. If I do another floral print, I'm a plagiarist, you know, I'm a plagiarist. Or I had a photo shoot where the theme was art, artsy, you know, artists. So artists painting with like the ladder and the easel and all that. And because another brand did that a few years ago, I'm a plagiarist, you know, or, um, you know, one person did a turban, you know, with two strings to tie it up. And, you know, because I also did a turban with strings, I'm a plagiarist when it's a common um, product. So I, the, the, one of the worst ones that I got was um, a scarf. I wanted to, cause we're always trying to innovate, trying to see out the lifestyle of our customers and so how, how to make it easier. So one of the ideas was an instant scarf. So when you put the scarf here and then the magnets just, just clip together and that's it, done. So it's not a new thing. It's not a, 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 a lot of brands have used magnets before. But this one, this one uh, founder did a TikTok video that went viral having millions of views because he was crying. And he was like... Mm how can uh, this big brand do this to me? You know, she completely plagiarized me and here I am. I'm just a small brand trying to make ends meet, you know, and oh, it's like he got so much love and support and I got in, in turn so much hate and like people wanting to like throw stuff at me, right? Um, because I'm always going to be seen as the big brand bullying smaller brands even if I've never heard of them or seen their products, or even if the products are generic products in the market already, you know, so I find that to be sometimes hard to deal with because mm. it's okay if I did it, then I'm like, okay, you know, like it's my mistake. But if I didn't do it and if I never heard of them, how can you just accuse someone of that? Like, and yeah. then public at large endorses it as truth. That hurts. You know, but so any news it, I read now is I take it with a pinch of salt. And it's fascinating how, you know, we started this story uh, with you being the underdog that was loved by the public and people rooting for you. And suddenly Vivi is now the big brand. Yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely right. You know, so I think I, I in a way I miss being the darling you know where like we're supporting um all the other brands and people were we're like a team you know but when mm. that doesn't work out anymore suddenly it just became like it, you know like she's now the bad guy um yeah. and i on, honestly sir like i think personally it's a little bit hard uh, i think i think it took me about two years to kind of um deal with this personally because in in social media i still need to be like hey you know everything's great but inside i it hurts when people who were a team now were like lashing out at each other on social media so one thing i do is i never engage on social media i personally message them like let's talk you know like this didn't happen and i'm really sorry that you thought it did but let's have a conversation about it and the response i get is more posts on social media so clearly it's not to solve problems or to you know it's just cloud like they need the attention you know and people ride on that and i think people forget that behind all of that the target is a human being you know like i'm mm. also trying to trying to trying to make the best of whatever i have and i also think you know i work hard yeah. and i don't i don't do these bad things to people but people like to villainize um you know, figures and um, mm. it just becomes popular to do so. And the advice that I get from wiser people is just keep quiet and just it's a long term game and um, you just need to prove yourself and just don't um, pick fights with people on social media, which that one I agree. Mm. And and so talking about long term game, uh, you know, you've built the in-house brand duck for a while now. Um, and it's now, you know, a brand in itself that that holds strong and is 
a big part of what the next decade is going to be about. Tell us a little yes. bit more about, you know, your shift, frankly, to modest fashion, right, in, in a large way and what this means to you. Yeah, I love this shift because it was also um, nudged by my customers because mm. um, I we were we were a, a normal you know platform neutral and and suddenly like the more of the modest fashion pieces getting started getting sold more so the data was telling us that people were interested in modest fashion maybe also it's largely malaysia so we're muslim majority our um and singapore and brunei were also our biggest markets so um modest fashion became uh, a focus even during fashion valley days so when um i started dark um I, it was out of my personal journey of starting to wear the hijab. You know, I started um, experimenting with it. I started shopping for other brands. And I just didn't find a brand that really resonated with me. You know, very international feel, very um, progressive. You want to show Muslim women as progressive, modern people who have careers, who have families, who, who travels, you know, um, who, who can speak English, you know, like, uh, I think that's, people think like Muslim women are so subdued and, you know, like, um, yes, dear, yes, dear kind of people. And I, I, mm. I didn't, I didn't resonate with that. So I, I, I myself am a strong Muslim woman, woman, you know, a modern one. Um, I have, friends from all over the world. And that's the part that I want to, I want to show, you know, um, that there's this brand that speaks about that, those values, traveling, discovering, learning, you know, um, being one with everyone else. So, um, I, I started it myself. So, um, it, it, it became a premium modest fashion brand and we started with just scarves and we would sell out. And then we would be mm. the first brand in Malaysia to work with international names like Disney, Barbie, um, uh, Starbucks, you know, uh, Baskin Robbins. So we, we, um, Sephora even. And I'm glad you brought this up though. You, you know, you talked about your personal journey, uh, being reflected also in your business. And, and, you know, I, I sort of shared this with you. We had, uh, one of the faces of the no hijab movement, right. In Iran with, uh, them being forced to actually wear the, the hijab, unlike in Malaysia and many Muslim countries where women are actually, this is your choice, right? Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what this means to you and, and why this is an important uh, part of your business with, you know, modest fashion? Yeah. So modest fashion was actually, um, you know, nudged by our customers. Our data was telling us, okay, a lot of, a lot more people, a lot of our customers at least are interested in modest fashion. So the scarves would sell out, the longer sleeves and the longer lengths would sell out. So I knew that, okay, when I started my own brands, I want to go into modest fashion. And it makes sense for me as well, because I was also on my journey to wear the hijab. I didn't really see it as a bigger global movement or anything. It was literally just mm -hmm. me KL, my, the culture here is, it's very accepted and it's very okay if you don't wear it either. So I have friends who wear it. I have friends who don't wear it. It's really your choice, you know, so it's not anything that people force onto you, you know? Um, so then I, when I wore it, I felt good. Like I just wanted to transition into another phase of my life as a Muslim woman. I wanted to be known as a Muslim woman. I was proud, you know, and, and I just felt beautiful in it. it to me it was my choice I wanted it you know and I I was at a point in my life where I really wanted to do this for my own faith it was my journey with God so it, to me it was very intimate it was just between me and him you know um but because I'm public as well yeah started becoming a movement and suddenly um people were also uh interested in wearing the hijab as well and I'm like okay like I didn't I, I, I don't know, you know, I, 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 I guess good for you, you know, like if you want to also own it as a Muslim woman. Right. And, um, yeah. I, it's only when I started going overseas wearing the hijab, cause this is after uni and all that. Um, sure. I started feeling a little bit different cause, um, I went to the U S because I wore the hijab. They put me in a, in a room, you know, after, after security, you know, they put me in another room and I'm like, what, what did I do? You know, like I, different cultures see it differently right so for me honestly it's just my journey with god and i want to do this you know um it's my choice so it just so happened that i started with scarves category um but i quickly uh, grew it when i saw traction of the brand i 
quickly grew into cosmetics. I grew into apparel. I grew into bags. So now we're actually, you know, a modest fashion and lifestyle brand instead mm. of a job brand. And Vivi, if I may to, to pause you there, because, you know, as mentioned, we have an American and a global audience. What does it mean to you, you know, um, being able to display yourself uh, with the hijab when you say it's a personal relationship? You know, this I, I think it helps with our understanding uh, of what this relationship is all about and why this is important to you and, and so many others around the world. Yeah, I think it's unique to me because I started learning more about my religion. You know, and I think this is the spiritual part of me and spirit, spirituality is so personal, you know, and there's, yeah. the, you know, you can't fault people for choosing their own paths. Right. So for me, you know, I learned more. I relearned about my my religion. I found it so beautiful. Like it really re- asked people to respect others. There's so much love, love for neighbors, love for other people, doing a lot of charity. And there's nowhere in there that teaches me all these things that the media is making up like you know about violence and all this nothing nothing in there right so i think it's such a misconception in the bigger world about islam and for for me like i feel like it's my responsibility then to kind of make it you know like wear the hijab show that you're a muslim make a business be a millionaire you know like and then this like walk walk the talk right don't just talk the talk right so for me i think that's what differentiates me from everyone else um in the larger world you know when i go to conferences now sometimes i'm the only one in hijab you know when i went to bof for example the gala i was the only like one of the only ones in hijab and i i feel like that's so beautiful because it makes me different and Mm. it gives me an edge too and i have this deeper connection with my faith you know so i feel like it's a win-win, you know, um, and, and I, I love wearing it. And I think it, it is a choice. I don't, I don't judge people. I don't judge Muslim women who don't wear it. That's their choice too. So, you know, everyone's journey in faith is their own, you know, it takes, yeah. it's their own path, their own timing. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, for your investors, it is a huge target market, right? That's growing. Tell yeah. us a little bit about, you know, I mean, this is Takwa Tech. It's, it's all the rage now in Southeast Asia. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you're seeing and what you're excited about with the business in the next decade. Yeah. So modest fashion is like only a $300 billion um, only. market. Only. So, and the best part is it's pretty, uh, it's still a blue ocean there. It's not a red sea yet, you know? So I feel like there isn't one like, say, you know, big brand like Zara or, or H&M or Uniqlo that really owns the modest fashion space. And that's where I'm dreaming to be, to, to, to be, you know, um, I really want to see our brand grow globally, becoming a household name um, in big cities. To me, it's not just about Muslim women, it's also anyone who wants to dress modestly, you know, um, not everyone wants to show skin, you know, women respect each other for our own choices. So there are a lot of women who feel more comfortable, um, you know, showing less skin and looser clothes, you know. Um, and and I think that that's the beauty of it. I just want to give people more choices, right? And modest fashion that isn't one global brand that has made it through all regions, um, like how some mm-hmm. of the more, the more mainstream fashion brands have. So to me, I'm like, why not? You know, there are 2 billion Muslims in the world. One, half of them women. Every one of them needs a prayer wear because we need to pray five times a day. That's the that's what we've been taught. Every one of them would have to go to a, a wedding or a, or a you know, religious um, gathering and they need to wear abaya or like a, a shawl, at least one, you know, in their closet. So I'm like, why is this not being sold in Oxford Street? Or, you know, you know, anywhere in the US like why is there no store that that makes it easy for for us to to get them when it is a necessity for 1 billion people you know so to me i'm like no no like that's a space i want to go and i want to be in and you know of course the dream is there but to get there is not a straight path as you know you know as a as yeah. an entrepreneur but it's like a roundabout you know roller coaster and i'm realizing that it's not as easy as it sounds but I love that because that's the challenge. Yeah. So as you enter your next decade, uh, having done your reflections, which actually, I mean, you know, your book forced you to do that, uh, to, to really grapple with the, the good, bad and ugly. 
what were some of your mistakes that you felt in your last decade um, were, you know, some of your toughest mistakes that you definitely uh, will want to do differently in this next decade? Mm, okay. For sure, um, listening to my gut feel. Um, I think I... I doubt myself a little bit too much there, but you know, you're the one doing the business. So actually, you know, best, you know, not your, not, not anyone else. Um, second, I think I would do international expansion differently. Um, I think we were too bullish and too overconfident with our last business model um, that we're like, no, you know, let's just go, let's just go and figure it out. I, and then it gets too, it gets expensive, you know, to go into it. Um, yeah. to other markets. So I would do that a bit more carefully this time um, and do a softer approach and get traction and then go big instead of going big and then hoping traction will come. Um, I would do that differently. Um, I'm also at a point where I'm learning how to manage managers rather than doing it myself. Like I'm not to say less hands-on, but I want to empower you know, experienced managers to help me lead so that we can go together. So I'm at a point where I'm, I'm finding my own kind of leadership way. Um, so, mm. so yeah, a lot of um, mistakes and learnings that I am hoping to apply, you know, in, in my next decade. So. Yeah. And we look forward to that. I mean, you know, what you've built over the last couple of years, the good, bad and ugly. I think has, has certainly left a legacy, uh, Vivian. We're, we're so excited for your next chapter. Now, we've covered a lot of ground, uh, and I usually end with a quick fire round. So, billion dollar questions, quick questions, uh, no contact. Oh, yeah. And okay. you just have to say the first thing that comes to mind, okay? Are you ready? <laughs> okay, okay. Money or power, Vivi Yusuf? Money or power? Money. <laughs> Fame or fortune? Fortune. Okay. Highest high? What's your highest high? God. So many. Um, I think... Uh, Which one? Oh, sorry. Okay, okay, no. <laughs> your highest high is this. Like, I wrote a book. Like, yeah. Um, but... <laughs> All right. Lowest low? Pivoting and realizing that, you know, the dream that you had was not, you know, doable, you know, yeah. Hmm. What are you now watching on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, whatever you're watching? <laughs> I just finished watching Harry and Meghan. <laughs> oh, and we have thoughts on that. We have thoughts on that. This is a separate show. <laughs> Another episode. Your favorite book. My favorite book. Uh, right now, I think it's Bob Iger, Ride of a Lifetime. And also Ooh. the adults book. Oh my God, I can't decide. That's like, <laughs> that's like picking your favorite child. Look, there's so many. Yes. And I love how it's called, color coordinated, by the way. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Bob Iger it is. Yeah. Going once, going twice. Okay. All right, him. Advice for your younger self. What you wish you knew when you were younger. Oh. Um, what I, oh God, okay, um, to just, to just listen to your gut and just try, because I think my fear now is not trying, because I've mm. done it, I've done the failures and I'm still here, so I'm, I guess I'm no longer scared of failures, because it doesn't kill you, you know, so I'm more scared of not trying than failing. Wow. Okay. So you have four kids now. Uh, I hear maybe a fifth. Is, is that how? No way. Who told you that? Close shop. Close shop. Okay. So you have four kids. Three principles you want your kids to live by. God. Ooh. Um, to be humble. Um, One. To not be afraid of trying and to always listen to your mother. Uh, <laughs> is that a principle? Okay, being, <laughs> being uh, filial piety, I suppose, filial piety. <laughs> okay, we will take that, we will take that. Okay. And finally, 
Um, what is the legacy that Vivi Yusuf will leave behind? Vivi Yusuf wants to live a legacy of telling the young people to live with sincerity. So whatever you do, do it with sincerity. Whether it's work, whether it's love, whether it's um, whatever you do, do it with love and sincerity so that you find joy in everything that you do and that you also have no regrets because you've given your all. So even if something fails, it's fine because I tried my best, I gave my all and I enjoyed myself thoroughly. So I think I just want to remind people to just not take themselves too seriously and to just live their best life. Mm, love that. And with that, Vivi, I think that was a powerful note to leave on. It gave me chills a little bit, you know, uh, and I'm excited for the legacy that I know you will build and all that will come from it. So thank you so thank much for taking time. Thank you. It was so nice talking to you. Yeah. And Even where can we find your book? Where can we find you? You know, if people want to go and find out more about you, where can we do that? Yeah, so follow me on Instagram. I'm very active on Instagram at Vivi Yusuf. And I wrote a book. So this book um, is going to be worldwide distribution. So wherever you are, I hope it'll be in all your major bookstores. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Bill and Dollar Moves.